0: Well, hello, and thanks for joining uh, our podcast, our 15-minute fact finder. I'm Roy Lilly, and my guest today is someone who we probably know um, under a a nomenclature, a a signature name, uh, and it's the waiting list guru. So we've got the guru with us today, Rob Finley. How are you doing, Rob? (laughs) I'm
1: great, Roy. Thank you
0: well thanks for giving us your time now because we know you as the uh, the waiting list guru but i think you you've now taken your expertise into new fields you you were the new organization who are they
1: um it's Insource insource.co.uk um, they're a um, sme based in reading and what they're really really good at is data linking data uh, end-to-end along the rtt pathway and beyond linking all of that data from multiple hospital sites into what they call a unified data layer and then clever apps like all the guru apps and other things you can just sit that on top of this and once you've sat it on top once it works everywhere so it, you then suddenly get access to all your data in one place in a very uh, in, in in a very usable form that you can do lots of really intelligent things with
0: right well it sounds very exciting data being the new oil um i hope you <laughs> you make lots of money. Good luck, Rob. Well, okay. yes, and the
1: price of oil is looking great at the minute, isn't yes. it,
0: Roy? It's <laughs> up, I know. God's sake, the cost of living. Let's not get into that. It'll take more That's than ten minutes. Okay, right. The clock starts now, Rob. Um, well, let's, here's your starter for one. Is it, are the waiting risks really the worst they've ever been?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm 56. I started in the NHS in the early 90s, and my first boss was a fella called Anthony McKeever, Mac, um, who had just finished achieving England's first waiting time target for John Major in 1991, and that was the two-year inpatient wait. And on top of that, we had a target for a six-month wait for the first outpatient appointment. And on top of that, we had the bit in the middle where patients got sent around follow-up loops repeatedly. Um, And so things were quite a bit worse, actually, in the 80s and early 90s. And um, at the same time, I remember going to Wales and visiting hospitals in Wales and Uh, You had places where the waiting time for a hip operation could be as long as seven years. Um, I mean, the stuff that Mac found, he he, he found uh, plastic surgery patients who'd been waiting for longer than a decade. They've been added to the list as toddlers. And of course, you know, now by then they'd reached the age where there was very little the NHS could do for them. So I don't know whether it's the worst ever. But we're getting there and it's bad.
0: Yeah, it's it's all going in the wrong direction. I remember that. I mean, because you know, you're you're but a lad in short trousers. Everyone knows I used to come <laughs> to work with Florence Nightingale on a tandem. And of <laughs> course there were times when we did we couldn't even count the number of people waiting to be treated. Never mind. And it was really John Major who got everybody pulling their socks up. Okay, so listen, it's 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 bad. We know it's bad. Um, but I mean I, I think it's it could be a lot worse than we think it is. And I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but because that's your job. But the um, it's what I call the Rumsfeld group, isn't it? The known unknowns. And no one's really impressed me with getting a, a real handle on just how many of the people who should have come forward during COVID didn't for you know, good reasons. And they're starting to come into the system now.
1: Yes, that's right. So we've uh, got—I don't know—eight million or whatever it um, is—missing referrals. Uh, The gap between the referrals that we would normally have expected to see and the number that we actually saw during the COVID shutdowns. What's going to happen? Well, I suspect—and I've got no data for this, so this is purely guess—that many of them are already coming back, and there are new patients who are not presenting. That. What we're possibly seeing is quite a long-term change in the threshold at which patients seek care. Will there be a surge coming back? I don't know. I don't think anybody does know um, what proportion of the missing referrals will come back. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see. I I, I think it's been so long now without referrals having gone back up over the pre-COVID rate. I think we can probably suspect it's going to be quite a slow burn and not rather than a sudden surge
0: yeah that that's interesting isn't it because the yeah we 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 have no real way of knowing and of course the the extent to which covid would have produced its own waiting list with what they call yeah. uh, what's being called long COVID and the effect of that and the, 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 effect of waiting exacerbates whatever it is people need to be treated makes it worse. I, I, I was looking at the numbers uh, before uh, COVID and they'd started to go wrong then. And uh, there was a, I think a 0.5% decline in the, in um, in the numbers, and that was attributed to the fact that it, their patients were older and the um, treatments were more complicated. Well, if that's true, it's going to be a confounding factor post-COVID, isn't it? Because people will be that bit older and they've waited longer, and their conditions will get worse.
1: Yes, there are lots of things happening, and this feeds into the sort of known unknowns. That, or well, actually, these are there are kind of known knowns here. I mean, one of the things, you you see, the focus tends to be on RTT weights, because that's what the target's about. So that's referral to treatment, so that the clock starts when your referral is received by the hospital, and it doesn't stop until you're either discharged uh, or you get your treatment. And that's the basis that the target uh, is set for. But within that, you have patients at all kinds of different stages along their pathway, their journey towards treatment. And the group that worries me most within that pathway are the patients that have not yet received a diagnosis or reached and reached a decision uh, whether or not to have treatment. Now, the waiting time from referral to decision to admit is currently longer than nine months. Now, if you take that nine-month wait and put it together with the with what we know from the Roots to diagnosis study of cancer, we know that nearly a quarter of patients who turn out to have cancer are referred not on a two-week pathway, just as an ordinary referral. So we will have thousands, possibly tens of thousands of patients on the waiting list right now. They've got cancer. They don't know it. Their GP doesn't know it. And if they're waiting nine months to see a specialist, then their cancer will be advanced by the time it's detected. And that's a group that really worries me. And it's not just cancer, it's other conditions too. Um, I mean, and, and it helps with the waiting well side of things as well. So if you have something like, so let's say you need a hip replacement. If you get to diagnosis and decision quickly, then you can have put in place for you all the waiting well stuff about exercise, pain control, that is specifically tailored to you and to your condition. Um, and if you've got very, very long delays to diagnosis and decision, then it's more difficult to put that kind of thing in place. So that's one group I'm really worried about. And then the other groups are the ones that aren't counted at all. So firstly, patients who have a chronic disease, such as glaucoma or something, and they need to be seen by a specialist at regular intervals. And if those intervals get stretched, then there is clinical risk to that patient. They could go blind. Yeah. Um, and then you've got okay. patients with urgent conditions who's um, who, who may be having their weight stretched as well.
0: Yeah. It, you paint a horrifying picture of, I must say, uh, let's turn our attention to perhaps also regional variations. When you look at the numbers, Are there any parts of the country that are doing better than others, because part of the the policy to address waiting lists is to shunt people around the country. If they're willing, they can go in on this new jolly fine website and say, well, I can get my hip done. Um, I live in Southampton. I can get it done quicker in Sunderland. So I want to go to Sunderland. Is there is there a geographical uh, change?
1: Well, if you look at the figures by region, say, there are always going to be some regions that are waiting a bit longer than others. I, th- I think on the latest figures from memory, I think the Midlands turned out to be the longest, but, um, the, but the variation is much more between one specialty and another. And that's no help when it comes to busing patients around the country, um, because if orthopedic waits along everywhere, then moving you isn't going to be much help because the, the system as a whole... Is struggling with capacity.
0: Yes, and then now, you've got all the post post operative palaver as well when people come back from Sunderland to Southampton. Mm, so that that. Yeah, that's, sorry. I would you. make an exception to that though, and and that is
1: when it comes to the ultra long waits. And here I'm talking about the the patients who've waited longer than 104 weeks or so two years. Um, the numbers there are really quite small, and not all hospitals are struggling with the ultra long waits. There could be some scope there, where the numbers are relatively small. But in terms of you know getting waiting times back down below fifty-two weeks of RTT or something like that, I'm I'm a little bit sceptical about how much difference it's going to make. I think the problem, the fundamental problem, and the watershed that we've got to get past is that um, at the moment the NHS can't keep up with the demand for elective care. And that means everything's getting worse. Soon as you get over that watershed and you can keep up with the demand for elective care, suddenly everything starts getting better and the world absolutely changes at that point.
0: Yeah. The, the, the political ambition um, in Sajid Javid, Secretary of State for Health's uh, oral statement of the House, was that in three years, it, it wasn't clear what he said, but I, I think he said in three years' time, the NHS will be... Performing thirty percent better, um, and and I mean that was a something he kind of left hanging. I, um, it seems impossible to me. The NHS is going to somehow produce thirty percent more performance with the with what it, you know the people that it's got, and and in three years' time we won't have that many more people. But. I mean, is is it possible, do you think, looking at the numbers and based on your experience, is it possible for the NHS to crank up its performance by a third?
1: Well, if you if you put it that way, then I agree, it sounds absolutely absurd. I mean, the thought that the NHS could do suddenly do 30 percent more hip operations and so on is is, is is not credible, with uh, given that workforce is the bottleneck. But let's break it down a little bit. Let's loosen the concept of what it means to do 30% more activity. Let's say, instead of um, patients coming in all the time for outpatient appointments all the way along their elective pathway, that we found ways of not having to do all of that, more one-stop diagnostic uh, uh visits and and that kind of thing. Let's say um, that we had uh, more uh, advice and guidance, because I I believe that advice and guidance is now counted as activity. Um, It's 6% of the 10% increase that's being called for at the moment. Um, Let's observe what I said earlier, that the biggest problem at the moment is the very long wait to diagnosis and decision. The focus in reducing that, will be on outpatient type and diagnostic type activity rather than the heavy and expensive end of the treatment pathway, which is the actual treatments themselves. Now, clearly, we have to get patients to treatment at some point. That's got to be done, and patients cannot wait indefinitely for it. But over the next year or two, the focus should be on those early stages of the pathway to bring down the waiting time to diagnosis and decision and clear some of the sheer numbers off the list, because the administrative cost and overhead of managing colossal waiting lists is not to be underestimated. And it's risky. Patients get lost in colossal waiting lists. So that's the focus. That's at the inexpensive but complicated end of the pathway, Could we achieve 30%? Well, it doesn't sound so ridiculous. I agree it's a stretch, but it doesn't sound so ridiculous.
0: If you you break it up like that, and I suppose we could have a massive surge on day case, for example, cataracts. Now, you know, I've had uh, cataract operations and I was uh, amazed really how quick it was and how fast I recovered. Um, So so I suppose it would be possible to turn some hospitals into a regional cataract factory.
1: Yes, and uh, Uh, Cold sites are extremely popular with surgeons, rightly so. Uh, They can get on doing what they love all day long without interruption from um, emergency care coming in and without the beds being taken at short notice. Um, And that's all terrific. Um, I do think we need to watch out, though, that in driving towards things that we find it easy to do, that we don't neglect the patients that we find it harder to do the heavy operations that require a lot of time in theater and a few days in bed afterwards, possibly even a critical care stay. We wouldn't want to be holding those patients out at multi-year waits while we bang through all the cataracts. Um, there's got to be some fairness and some recognition of clinical need. Uh, take orthopedics, for instance, uh, this, I think it's about the third time I've mentioned orthopedics, but I really don't want orthopedics to get lost because orthopedics are heavy consumers of theatre time, heavy consumers of beds. They're expensive. You know, you can spend all morning uh, and only take two or three patients off the, off the waiting list. Yeah. Getting through yeah. 7 well, hip, seems an, more attractive.
0: <laughs> an uncomplicated hip takes two hours. And yeah. You've only got to have something go slightly wrong, and that's buffered the list for the rest of the day then. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And and Look, we mustn't Rob, neglect that. Keeping up with demand means keeping up with all of the demand, not just the easy demand.
0: Yeah. And who would have Sir Jim Mackey's job, eh? Trying to sort this slide out. Look, uh, we up against the buffers of time. I promised 15 minutes. Okay, where are we going to be, Rob? Put your uh, Mystic Meg wig on. Uh where <laughs> are we going to be this time next year?
1: Uh this time next year, I suspect we will be in a position that's not vastly different to where we are now, I'm afraid. Um, and,
0: and politically, we've got the election coming up 2025. What are we going to be like then, do you think?
1: I think if the government can show that things are on an improving path, that that will help them. It would help if they'd also got some improvement mileage under their belts. Mm. Um, that, I think, would set the right tone. But I think the public are going to start getting quite impatient and they're going to want to see that things really are going to get back to, to reasonable waiting times. I do think it's going to take us most of the decade, though.
0: Rob Finley, Waiting List Guru, brilliant. Thank you for your time. And if you've thank been you. listening, thank you. And if you want to refer it to somebody else, click the button and send it on to a friend. Thank, thank you, you very Ray. much. This has been Roy Lilly and Rob Finley. Thank you.